All right, everybody, welcome to episode 25, Stat Recap. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannett. This is the Stem Cell Podcast. Yos, my man, what's uh, what's going on? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I'm excited about uh, having Dr. Knopfler back on. Um, he's always a good guest to have on. He's He runs the blog over there, ipscell.com. And uh, I'm, I'm glad we're going to have an expert on uh, some of the, the stem cell times. Uh, he's sort of like the stem cell times newspaper all in one person. <laughs> yeah, it is like the stem cell times. And, you know, I, honestly, like I, I really wouldn't have talked... I don't think we would have talked about this whole stem cell situation again. However, you know, in the period that we're covering for this podcast, something extraordinarily horrible has happened, and we'll talk about that. There was a death of a very, very well-known scientist who was on the author line of the STAP paper, which is why we're putting a show dedicating it, dedicating it to STAP again. So we'll get into that uh, in a little bit. Um, it's pretty awful, um, but we'll, again, we'll, we'll talk about it for the majority of the show. So I'll let that just progress. Uh, how's it going over in New York, man? How's research? Everything's oh, going well. Yeah, things are good. I got a bunch of RNA seq data that I'm going through. Have you ever uh, looked through RNA seq results? Before? Yeah, it's kind of yeah. weird, right? You got all those weird uh, files and 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 what are the, they? The, the, the BAM PKMs, files, yeah. The BAM and then, files. Yeah, you and got your like reads per yeah, kilobase per million base pairs. <laughs> it's it's the terms are new to me, but uh, I'm I'm enjoying going through my gene list. So uh, it's exciting to get data like that back. Yeah, it really yeah. is because yeah. you can start to make sense of stuff. Um, although it's a lot of data. Tons yeah. of data that you're getting. And you know what I like is when it makes my the fan on my laptop go on and starts processing it, you're like, yeah, work I know. That work that CPU. Is, 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 <laughs> I know. Work but that it never, does it ever shut off once it turns on? I feel like once that thing kicks on, it stays on. And I get nervous. It's going to just blow up one day. <laughs> well, I feel bad for your laptop then. Yeah, I know. Me too. Anyway, <laughs> um, so in terms of the podcast, um, you know, you guys know where we are, stemcellpodcast.com, at stemcellpodcast, stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. We, we should have some pretty interesting um, things happening. Got some announcements to make soon. We are in the process of finalizing an, an agreement with the International Society for this uh, stem cell research. Yosef and I are really excited about that. We will be the official podcast of the ISSCR. Uh, so that's really awesome. And we'll, we'll then be integrated into all of their uh, web-based activities and other activities as, as some content for them. And uh, that we'll have a better reach uh, to uh, people in stem cell research. So y- you, should be, you should hear about that fairly soon. We're really excited about that. That yeah, arrangement. hopefully that'll also raise the profile of some of the PIs that we get to come on the show. Um, I know that in the past, some people have been resistant on coming on. Uh, hopefully with their backing, we could get them to talk about their research and, it, you know, expand the audience for their work as well. So uh, Yeah, um, they're like, who be these guys on the yeah. podcast? <laughs> <laughs> so now we get a little more clout and, uh, and, and, and the ISSER is a great organization to work with, so we're excited about that. So we'll let you know when that goes down. We also have an, uh, another member who helps us with the podcast is down at a podcasting meeting in Dallas right now uh, and learning about different ways and, and things to do with podcasts to help the reach the audience better. So I'm, I'm excited to meet uh, and, and, and debrief with him. And, and, yes, and that's, get, that's our silent partner over that's there. That's the silent partner, Anthony. What's up, Ant? <laughs> I know you're listening out there. So we're going to get a debrief on the world of podcasting, which has become a world, to be yeah. honest. It's a 
It's a major thing. Yeah, so uh, you ready to kick off the Let's science kick off the roundup, my man. What you got? Going. Uh, so I just read this week that science in Science Magazine, they have created the first ever robot flash mob, uh, these self-organizing ki- kilobots or kilobots. Uh, there's a thousand of these little robots. They're only a few centimeters wide, and they receive commands via infrared light. And uh, about four robots uh, initiate the pattern forming, so you could just say form a shape of a star and the, the four uh, out of these 10 24 robots get the signal and then the other ones just sort of self-organize around it and uh this is sort of mimicking all the you know stuff that that comes in mass like i know schools of fish could do stuff uh in mass that you know, individual fish can't do. So uh, it's an important principle and you can find that over in science magazine. They even have ways of fixing traffic uh, when the, (laughs) the bots get, you know, sort of jumbled up. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, this sort of relevant to today's topic and it's not, not something I usually cover in the science roundup, but there was a sage publishers, uh, just got rid of 60 papers uh, from the Journal of Vibration and Control. You know, I read them every morning. Yeah, that's a great uh, journal. Yeah, so this guy, Peter Chen, out of Taiwan, uh, created about 130 fake email addresses and was basically suggesting them as reviewers. And so he was reviewing oh some of his own papers. <laughs> Well, you know what though? That's kind of smart. That's like a genius idea. It's awful. I know. Oh my evil God. genius! But this guy, yeah, Peter. That Chen actually out. happened. Yeah, yeah. So uh, they had a retract. Just like, oh, I got a, I got an email to review a paper. Let's see what's in there. Oh, I know this study. <laughs> That's pretty elaborate when you're saying. Up yeah, it really is. You wow. know. Yeah. So uh, that that uh, is a disgrace. More problems there. with the publishing process. We'll yes. Yes. That. Yes. So uh, there was a. Journal of Antimicrobial Agents and Chemotherapy Studies showing where they combined uh, basically silky electrically spun fibers with marav- Maraviroc, this is an anti-HIV uh, drug, to essentially make a anti-HIV tampon that releases uh, medication as the fibers dissolve when exposed to moisture. So hmm. hopefully, yeah, maybe we'll see uh, that in the developing world. Who knows? Uh, there was a neuron study showing that why we just can't live in the moment. They uh, researchers looked at three uh, regions in the brain: the frontal eye field, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, and the supplemental eye field, or SEF. So uh, they were looking for metacognition, which is also uh, known as thinking about thinking. So it's sort of, you know, yeah, yeah, it's very meta. So metacognition, which is linked to decisions, to bets. Um, So, you know, when they do these uh, betting, they, uh, they, you know, do like situations where they have people uh, decide on if they want to take a bet or not. Um, basically it came down to this, uh, supplemental eye field, the metacognition, and this is responsible for using past decisions and outcomes to guide future behavior. So, uh, they were basically able to, uh, nail down the metacognition or thinking about thinking to this region. So you can find that over in neuron. 
Uh, there was a J Neuro study showing that brains are able to judge the trustworthiness of a face, even when we can't consciously see that face. Uh, so they focused on the amygdala, amygdala and used uh, trusty faces, which I thought was funny. A trustworthy, a trusty face. Yeah, is a high inner brow and pronounced <laughs> cheekbones, okay, versus a low inner brow and small cheekbones, which is, uh, I guess, an untrustworthy sort of angry Danny Trejo looking <laughs> face. I don't know. <laughs> um, it's all about the brow, man. Yeah. I mean, uh, the brow the brow can totally set you off, I feel yeah, like. If you look at someone and they got a weird brow, it, I, 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 no, I, totally, I totally see that. Yeah, Quentin Tarantino's brow is interesting yeah. to me. Yeah, he looks like he's an got that genius. Brow. Yeah, yeah. By uh, so they they use these faces and uh, expose people to the faces, and then they did uh, what's called backward masking, where after they show the face, they show an irrelevant mask image right after the face exposure, and then they uh, basically to wipe clean the image uh, from observation. Then they could prevent conscious observation so this is all comes down to like snap judgments and what i think is physiognomy like how people just sort of make a decision when they see a face like yeah. physical attributes from you know uh judging i guess making uh uh inherent truth you know that gut feeling yeah, that happens all the time right yeah I mean, yeah right you look at something or someone and you make a judgment on you basically judge them as a person just by their face. Uh, you know, in my appear, in my experience, a lot of the times when somebody looks like a scumbag, they are. <laughs> I don't know if that's well, yeah, true. I, mean, or not. I don't know how it bears out, right? Yeah, yeah. sure. I don't know I mean, how that I, works. I think they're go- but 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 you know what though? You got to be careful though, because like there's one thing about like uh, how someone takes care of their self and their their grooming and how they look, and then just actual facial facial structure like a yeah. brow but yeah. then again brows can be tweaked no yeah. pun intended right yeah. you can make your brow look different yeah yeah it's true i mean i don't know that's cool that's interesting yeah yeah uh so okay moving on from physiognomy because that could get really ugly um there was a gut study where they created 65 cell lines from 45 patients uh using tissue from the uh, extracted from the gastrointestinal uh, system, uh, the GI, uh, they got it from colonoscopies and used epithelial stem cell techniques from mice to grow these lines where they uh, exposed them to Wnt and Arspondin. And then they were able to show that these cell lines, these gut cell lines, if you will, uh, were able to uh, take in E. coli. So pathogenic strains of E. coli were able to attach to the intestinal epithelial cells. So expect to see some more, you know, uh, gut stem cell derived. They they made IPS cells, obviously, and then use like stem cell techniques to culture uh, GI tract in a dish, essentially. Huh. So uh, that's an important finding moving That forward. is really important. Uh, there was a PLOS bio- biology study from a friend of mine, actually, from back in the day when I was at Yale. Paul Lombroso, Lombroso over at Yale showed that uh, the compound TC2553 inhibits negative effects of striatal-enriched tyrosine phosphates, or STEP. And this uh, reverses Alzheimer's disease-related uh, deficits in mice. So uh, there was like this got a lot of press, um, 
and uh, high levels of step uh, keep synapses in the brain from strengthening. So uh, they were able to basically inhibit the negative effects of that using TC2553. Uh, there was a JCI, Journal of Clinical Investigation, paper uh, showing that blocking nuclear receptor PPAR gamma in neurons that produce POMC in the hypothalamus caused mice to eat less and became resistant, and these mice became resistant to a high-fat diet. Uh, so via free radical formation and uh, more active POMC neurons, um, they were able to basically like make the the mice resistant to a high fat diet. Cool. So uh, yeah, PPAR gamma is a target of TZD or thiazolidinediol class of drugs, uh, which is used for type two diabetes. And this can explain why some of this treatment, uh, TZD treatment, uh, causes an increase in weight gain uh, in patients undergoing type two di- uh, diabetes treatment. Do you envision a world where we find a drug that allows people to just eat like animals and not gain weight? Yes. Yes, I do. Because, you know, it's been shown in mice sometimes. You could just, you know, block. Just go crush McDonald's and no no worries. (laughs) I mean, aside from your liver getting fat, I mean, you won't get fat, maybe. Yeah, I'm sure there's got to be a, you know, some sort of. The water's got to flow somewhere. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, There was a NEDGEM or New England Journal of Medicine study showing that uh, there's a new marker for breast cancer. I don't know if you saw this. It's called pal b Two P A L B two. So I uh, everybody. Well, most people are familiar with the BRCA mutation. So yeah, Pal B two looks like the new player in town. Uh, About uh, a third of patients who have of women who have this mutation will go on to develop breast cancer by the age of seventy. So uh, Pal B two mutant cells are sensitive to PARP inhibitors, which are currently under trial for BRCA one two breast cancer mutation. So uh, there may be some sort of link there or some sort of, you know, uh, connection going on. Uh, so you can find that in Nedgem. Uh, there was a nature nanotechnology study showing the creation of remote controlled nanomotors using light to control the speed and direction of, uh, I, I, you know, I'm just going to show, uh, send this to you right now, Chris, cause you have to see this video. They basically, you know how like we do with optogenetics and you can see firing of cells. Right. These guys uh, did it with these like motors. Uh, uh, the, we'll post the video on the website. Right. It's it's really 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 cool That's to awesome. watch. That Once they cool. flash the light, it's crazy. It's like the all the motors slow down instantly. I'm, I'm going to send that to you right now. So um, yeah, you can find that in Nature Nanotechnology and on our website. Uh, there was a JCI paper showing that capsaicin, the capsaicin, sorry, the uh, the heat. Uh, the heat yeah, molecule, hot sauce. yeah, the hot sauce uh, produces chronic activation of trip V one, the trip receptor, uh, in epithelial cells lying the intestine, which then reduces the risk of colorectal cancer. So, EGF receptor, uh, epidermal growth factor receptor, can activate trip V one, and uh, EGFR controls gut lining turnover every four to six days our gut lining turns over and uh they these authors were able to show that trip v1 knockout mice have more intestinal tumors and that capsaicin fed mice had 30 percent 
uh, less tumors. And uh, by combining it with COX-2 inhibitor, uh, Selexacoxib, they even had better results. So so uh, go eating a lot of chicken and rice and hot sauce might yes. not be good for you the next morning, yeah. but it will be good for you in the long term. Yeah, that that's, the that's sort of the moral of the story right there. <laughs> uh, moving on, there was a sleep journal study uh, using twins. They were able to show that uh, a variant of uh, DEC2 or B- basic Gila hoops, uh, Helix Loop Helix HE41 gene. Uh, it's a P tyrosine 362 uh, His variant uh, that basically focusing on this uh, slight mutation in the DEC2 gene. Uh, these, uh, P, uh, I guess, twins uh, slept five hours instead of six hours on average and had a better recovery after sleep. So this may explain why some people are able to get by with less sleep, a genetic cause for that. Hmm. So you can find that in sleep. And I just By the have- way, um, I'm just not- looking. You guys can't see Yosef right now, but his cat just jumped up <laughs> behind up. him. And I glanced up at the camera, and I saw this tail just <laughs> kind of sticking out of the back. And it looked like it was a tail oh, coming out of your ear. It was real weird. Funny. I didn't know what that was. Sorry. Anyway, keep going. So I'm <laughs> Um, yeah, so uh, there was a cell report study showing uh, that knockout mice spread to uh, lack trap one protein compensate by switching to alternative cellular mechanisms for making energy. They show that uh, these trap uh, one mice uh, had had uh, essentially fewer signs of aging. So trap one is a heat shock protein 90 chaperone and the knockout causes mitochondrial proteins to misfold, which triggers compensatory responses in the cells, causing them to consume more oxygen and metabolize more sugar. And that the low level of oxidative stress and DNA damage counter the intuitively reduce uh, cell proliferation and allow for natural repair mechanisms to take effect. So you can find that over in cell reports. And uh, there was, I'm going back to the Otzi Iceman again. Uh, I talked about him last time. Uh, there was a global heart uh, study showing that uh, this, the, the Iceman had a gene, had a predisposition to heart disease. They had one, uh, the, the Iceman had one gene on the ninth chromosome that's strongly tied to heart troubles. And this, uh, this this Iceman that was discovered in 1991 in the Otzel Alps near Austria and Italy just keeps giving data. So uh, finally, I'm going to end on a FACEB uh, journal uh, showing that there's a lymphocyte genome sensitivity test. Uh, so they use uh, this, this light sensitivity test on patients with melanoma, lung cancer, and colon cancer. And this test was able to identify malignancies and precancerous conditions uh, uh, use with a high degree of accuracy. So they basically shine UV light to measure uh, damage to white blood cells. Uh, and people with cancer have DNA that is more uh, easily damaged by this UV light. Wow, so it cool. could be a light test uh, for detecting cancer in the future. So, Jesus. yeah, face up. So Faceab. that's it for me. 
All right, let's go now to my side here. Um, You know, we always say, but you can get all of these. You can find all the links to all these papers on stemcellpodcast.com. So we we make it easy for you. So make sure you you use the resource. So I'll start with this because this is going to be the main topic for the the rest of the show and the interview. Um, The Japanese researcher and an author of that now discredited stem cell study, STAP, uh, was found dead, Yoshishiki Sasai. I uh, was the deputy director of the Riken Center for Developmental Biology in Kobe. One of my uh, neurodevelopmental biology heroes um, was found um, dead at the institute. He uh, hung himself and apparently committed suicide. Um, and we don't know really all of the reasons why, but it's assumed that one of the reasons is uh, the stress and agony and just, you know, intense criticism drawn from this whole stat crap. So sad, 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 sad ending. And we'll talk to Paul about how this all unfolds. So I won't really go into too much on that. Um, uh, next, along the same lines, though, uh, this is very recent that the we always talk about we haven't really heard from much about from Harvard um, in the stat uh, crap situation. Uh, but it was announced that the Brigham, Brigham uh, woman's researcher in the uh, f- infamous STAP study will now step down. So Dr. Charles Vacanti, he was the anesthesiologist, and he oversaw one of the uh, STAP uh, papers, will step down from his position as the chairman of anesthesiology department at Brigham and Women's Hospital and take a, a one-year sabbatical. Uh, so call it timely, call it a coincidence, call it not, whatever you want to call it. Uh, now he will be stepping down and going on his merry way for a little while, mm-hmm. uh, probably to escape this aftermath, especially in the light of society, I'm sure. Yeah, I love how the end they were like, just go take a walk yeah, for just a go, year. Uh, yeah, <laughs> just go take a stroll. This will all die down and you can come back. It's, it's, yeah, that sounds about right. Okay, and in nature, I thought this was interesting. Um uh, and in the words of uh, who is it, Alanis Morissette, isn't it ironic <laughs> that they put a they, they put a, a story out it says transparency promised for vilified impact factor. So they're talking about how uh, Tom Thomson Reuters, who who come basically produces the impact factor, the infamous impact factor. Uh, they say they vow to be more clear about how science's most misused metric is calculated. So basically, the impact factor was created to basically rank journals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was originally intended to help libraries decide which journals to purchase, but it has been used by researchers to determine which is the better article or which is the better journal to publish in. And uh, there's people say that it's impossible to really know how they make the calculation. I think there's some independent people that have tried to recalculate impact factors and have not been able to get close to what Thomson Reuters calculates and so um they're going to be a little more transparent and if you if you purchase a subscription to them you'll be able to access the calculator and how they actually calculate it um and they say that it was never intended to be used as it's being used uh for people to gain you know figure out which journal is the best but us in the scientific world has done that and therefore misused its intended uh, purpose. But uh, they promise to be more transparent only if you pay mm. uh, to find out uh, how the hell that's calculated. And the impact factor thing completely confuses me. I think it's like a random number. It's amazing that people follow it, you know? Mm. 
Um, All right. Let's get into some science now. Um, There was a a paper showing, I think this was in uh, stem cells uh, and transplantation medicine, uh, that injection of stem cells, CD34 positive hematopoietic stem cells into the brains of recent stroke victims might help their long-term recovery. So stroke is, you know, reduction of blood flow to the brain. And what they showed here is that um, if you if you re- soon after a stroke, if you were to uh, infuse into the blood uh, CD34 hematopoietic stem cells, that uh, they dem- the patients demonstrate signs of recovery over a six month period after treatment. Um, and so this is just a preliminary study showing how stem cells can be used in combination uh, with acute stroke to help long term benefit. Um, I, you probably saw this, Joseph. It got a lot of press. There's this uh, zebrafish discovery. Stem cell research gets a huge boost from Australian zebrafish discovery. This was published, I believe it was in Nature, I believe. Um, it'll be up on the website. They have made, <clears throat> they're calling one of the most significant ever discoveries in stem cell research. Um, one of the mysteries of stem cells in, in the blood, the hematopoietic stem cell, is uh, how it's how that hematopoietic stem cell is formed. And so they, using uh, the zebrafish model, have found that they're, they, they, they basically got insight as to how uh, they do this. They say they saw this pre-hematopoietic, pre-hematopoietic stem cells require a buddy cell <laughs> known as the endotome. Mm. And they say that the endotome cell acts like a sofa, like a comfortable, comfortable couch for these pre-hematopoietic stem cells to snuggle into. This is what they actually said in this mm. interview. I thought it was funny. To help them progress into like a fully-fledged stem cell. So they, they need some sort of support uh, to do that. So they said not only did I, did I identify some cells and signals required for the formation of the hematopoietic stem cell, but they also pinpointed genes required for that endotome cell formation in the first place. So that's a pretty big discovery in the world of hematopoiesis because figuring out how the, how the true hematopoietic stem cell forms is a major roadblock in, uh, in, in stem cell-derived uh, therapies to generate hematopoietic yeah. stem cells. Um, this was published, next pu- paper was published in Nature, August 17th. This is uh, out of uh, John Hopkins, the, led by Gu Lu Ming and Hong Jong Song. Well, those are uh, big researchers in, in the neuroscience field. And they, they reveal how, il- uh, how mental illness, or in more, more general, just you know, illness-linked genetic variation affects neurons. But this is talking about in the world of schizophrenia. Now, I used to be, you know, I used to be off modeling mental disease using pluripotent stem cells because I thought it was impossible. Hmm. But I've gotten back on the bandwagon now because you can learn a lot about how the how the genetic networks look different in these kind of patients. And so what they found is that a genetic variation linked to schizophrenia, which is that DISC-1 mutation, yeah. um, bipolar disorder and severe depression, uh, wreaks havoc on these connections among neurons. And in this study... Um, they they use these uh, they use cells gener- stem cells generated from these people with and without mental illness to observe the effects of these rare genetic variations, and then the results add to evidence that um, that major mental illnesses have common rules in faulty wiring during early brain development. So they're able to uh, identify uh, things that go wrong in these patients in early brain development using IPS technology to model uh, m- mental disease. So that's cool. That's in nature. A uh, little bit more into the technology, a couple papers. This was, uh, let's see, this is in Experimental Cell Research, a simple and efficient method for transfecting mouse embryonic stem cells using, using polyethylenamine. Um, so, you know, 
stem cells can be transfected with electroporation. I think that's what a lot of people are using, uh, where they you know zap DNA into cells or some sort of liposomal reagent. The famous one is L- LF. LF2K or lipofectamine 2000. Hmm. And in this paper, they use just a cationic polymer, PEI, polyethylamine. Lipofectamine doesn't use electricity though, right? No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. But, you know, we do electroporation, I guess, or use lipid-based. Right, right, yeah. Um, So what they said is that um, here they describe uh, conditions that permit very efficient transfection of mouse ES, not human, but mouse. They're working on human, I'm sure, with very low cytotoxicity and without the need for the, uh, a fancy equipment like an electroporator. They compared it to the standard, which is lipofectamine 2000, and found that they um, it, it compares very favorably to LF2K. Uh, and this polyethylamine is just a standard reagent you can buy from Sigma or something like that. So I hope they can show it works in human because that would be a major breakthrough because getting a stable transfection in uh, stem cells can be difficult sometimes. Yeah, and we so, know we learned from Kurt Vogel they're up to 3,000 lipofectamine 3,000. Yeah, they are. Else. It's like one of the most purchased reagents ever. Yeah, Thermo Fisher. Thermo Fisher. There they go. Thermo Fisher, baby. Yeah. Uh, doxycycline. This is in Stem Cell Reports. Doxycycline. Doxycycline. This is funny. Enhances the survival and self-renewal of human pluripotent stem cells. Just straight up dox. Wow. So, so doxycycline um, is used really. Is It's an antibacterial. And it's used a lot in, in gene uh, you know, when you can engineer constructs or plasma DNAs to have a tetracycline response element that when you add dox or doxycycline, it turns on the, the, the gene, turns on the plasma and you get transcription. So here they just show that if you add doxycycline to human ES or IPS, it helps them survive and self-renew. It's almost like a, like a, like a rock inhibitor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it has, and its actions are not associated with its antibacterial action, but it's more so. It's mediated by activation of PI3K AKT signaling. So they're saying it's a, it's a different, mm. easy way to just help stem cells live and grow. Don't you feel bad for all those people who use the doxy only as a control without the gene? You know, the ter- know, ten yeah, on yeah, gene. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then they're like, man, I didn't notice that. Uh, I don't know. So that's another way to do it. Um, most people use the rock inhibitor, but I guess you can use dox too. Uh, there is a paper in genome research. It's called the it said seamless gene correction of beta thalassemia mutations in patient specific cells. Yeah, I saw so, that. What, you saw that? Yeah, so there? it's cool. So major hurdle in gene therapy really is the efficient integration of a corrected gene. So in gene therapy, they, there's a gene that's mutated. You want to correct it. And the hurdle is to correct the gene in the genome without mutating off-targeted sites. So in this uh, paper, they use CRISPR-Cas uh, technology to uh, seamlessly and efficiently correct disease-causing mutations in patients with beta thalassemia. Beta thalassemia is an inherited DNA mutation in the hemoglobin uh, beta gene. And they were able to make iPS cells from patients. And very uh, simply, I'm going to say simple, I'm sure it wasn't simple, but they say it's uh, very seamless. They are able to correct the mutation, and then they're able to derive mature blood cells from these iPS and show that it restored the expression of hemoglobin. So that's pretty cool. Yep. It's building off of... uh, 
Uh, Michelle Satterling at MSK has got a big beta yeah, thalassemia did, program, did, right? Yeah, is it clinical also, trial? I, I thought Rudy showed this, and maybe just in mice. Rudy Anish's group, uh, they were able to correct. Maybe, the yeah, maybe gene. that was the difference. Um, but I, yeah, I this is in humans, so that's cool. This is in human cells. Yeah, awesome. Um, so that's cool. So then, then this one here, the Journal of American College of Cardiology: The Effect of Human Donor Cell Source on Differentiation and Function of Cardiac uh, Induced Pluripotent Stem Cells. So um, the protocols for IPS-CM or cardiomyocytes face um, a lot of challenges, they say. I didn't know this, including, I mean, I guess this is inherent to all IPS-derived derivatives, including variability in somatic cell sources and inconsistencies in cardiac differentiation efficiency, which I guess is the problem in most lineages. And so they wanted to assess the effect of epigenetic memory on differentiation. And so um, they took cardiac progenitor cells and skin fibroblasts from the same donors and reprogrammed them into IPS and differentiated them back to CMs. And they said that it was the deficiency was found to be higher in the, in the uh, CPC or cardiac progenitor cell-derived IPS than in the fibroblast-derived. And they, they, they go through a whole bunch of reasons as to why. But they say it's the first study to compare differentiation of cardiomyocytes from um, you know, uh, fibroblast versus another source, and they demonstrate that it has to do with epigenetic memory and such. Basically, like you know, if you if you derive IPS from the cell that you're turning the cell into, does mm-hmm. that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, if you wanted to make a neuron and you made IPS cells from someone's neuron, you'd probably be more efficient in generating neurons. So, uh, this is what which has been a hypothesis for a while, and I thought that it was shown. I'm not sure though that that wasn't necessarily the case. But here they're providing evidence to suggest that there is a uh, um, kind of a lineage or a regional. Isn't there some cellular me- memory? Like if you derive skin for IPS from like your toe versus your, you know, the top of your head, you have different like Hox gene memory uh, in the yeah, IPS. That's what I thought. Right? I don't know though. I don't remember if it was actually published or if I just heard people talking about it. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, uh, me too. But it seems yeah. like a plausible and a logical hypothesis, and they they go and they show a little bit about that in the cardiac lineage. And then, lastly, uh, this is in PLOS one generation of rat. This is rat induced IPS. Rat IPS cells from a new model of a metabolic syndrome. Uh, so there are these obese rats. Uh, it's like doll doll lep r. Something. It's a cross between doll salt sensitive rats and Zucker rats. You ever heard of a Zucker rat? No. no. And what the result is a new animal model of metabolic syndrome. And so they were able to establish IPS cells from these Met S rats. Uh, and now uh, they're using these rats to, uh, you know, characterize metabolic syndrome and obesity. Uh, and they're differentiating them to adip- adipocytes and such. Uh, and and say that it's a, a new model to to uh, understand metabolic syndromes and, and obesity and things like this. So you can find that in plus one. Nice. And uh, that's what I got, man. I think we'll uh, stop here. All right, Chris. Why don't you bring on our guest? All right. So in the topic tonight, um, you know, we've been talking about Dr. Sasai and 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 Stapp a bit. We figured it'd be uh, good to bring back on the show Dr. Paul Knopfler, who uh, is an associate professor, Department of Cell Bio at UC Davis School of Medicine, and in addition to running a lab and doing stem cell research and cancer research, he also maintains a very prolific and, uh, I believe, the best stem cell blog in the biz, ipscell.com is the web web address. If you guys haven't heard, yes, you should check it out. Definitely. Uh, welcome back to the show, Paul. How's everything going? It's going well. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, no problem. Um, you know, it's 
I guess it's, uh, it's kind of a, a sad thing to have you come back on and talk about, but I think I, I would like to start with a positive and some happy notes. Um, you know, we, we talked about Dr. Sasai's uh, tragic death, um, and I would just like to start, and then I would ask you for uh, your take. I, I would just like to start in saying that as a neuroscientist and stem cell biologist, I think Yost would, would, would agree uh, Dr. Sasai was a, kind of a hero in research for me. I, I grew up reading his work. Uh, I learned so much from it. Um, and I, I, he was like the gold stamp. You know, when, when, we, when we read something with Dr. Sasai's name on it, and I still believe it to the day, um, you really, you, you just believed it. I mean, there's so many things he did um, from the rock inhibitor I changed the way we grew stem cells. Yosef and I were just talking about it. Just to all his, his developmental biological approach to stem cell engineering. Um, he really was a tremendous visionary, and uh, he'll, be, he'll be missed. So uh, if you wouldn't mind, would you, you know, share some positive thoughts about Dr. Sasai before we start to get into what might be uh, a little bit more negative of stuff here when rounding the, the controversy? Sure, yeah. You know, I view uh, Sasai, Dr. Sasai as really, uh, like you said, as a hero in the cell uh, and developmental biology fields, you know, and and definitely um, after he passed away, there was really an outpouring of of people. Uh, you know, I was talking with who were providing tributes to him, and and I just posted a, a, a tribute post on my blog with some of the top scientists uh, in in these fields. You know, signing on, and you know, we you know we all really collectively view him as um, you know an innovator and a pioneer. You know, he. He did so many things. You know, you mentioned some of them. He also really pioneered the idea of, um, you know, growing neural uh, clusters uh, in culture that really resembled little mini organs. And, you know, he it's was a the, pioneer uh, in that area. The SFEB, right? SFEB, yeah, the serum-free yeah, embryo yeah. bodies. He's one of the first embryo bodies. That's how I initially knew him. And, and then I, mm-hmm. I saw the old rock inhibitor, which changed the game with stem cell science. For once, you could, like you know, grow them at the single cell level and start doing better cloning experiments and just, you know, it, it just changed the game. And uh, especially for back transgenesis. And uh, it, it really was a game changer. Yeah, absolutely. This guy was, like I said, he was an innovator and pioneer. And, and he really enabled other researchers to be more creative, you know, take risks, do all kinds of cool studies. So, um, you know, it wasn't just his research, but that, you know, he opened the door for a lot of other people. So when I first, you know, read that he had taken his own life, I was, you know, no exaggeration. I was really shaken up and, and I feel like it really is a tragedy. You know, I, yeah, I, things get real, you know, it, it, we talk about this controversy and I guess we can we can slowly work our way there. And, you know, you, you can't really say definitively that this whole mess with stap cells caused the death of Dr. Sasai. Clearly, um, you know, it's, you'd be naive to think it didn't play a role, but I, I don't want to say it was the main reason why this happened. I don't know Sasai, Dr. Sasai, I don't know his life and what he was going through. But um, it gets real science publications, these, these you know, these... You know, these frauds or these accusations when it ends with somebody dying. And so uh, I guess, you know, since you've covered this story a lot, Paul, would you just mind, you know, 
I was looking at a timeline that you put up on your blog, and this really started in the end of January. And so we can say it's about six months now, maybe a little more to the till it ending really in this and a recent event that we can talk about with uh, the Harvard situation with Vacanti stepping down and such. So would you just mind if you could take a couple minutes and just kind of, you know, in some, not in great detail, just go through where this happened, you know, the couple papers published and then, and then really what happened and then we can get to uh, the current events. You know, it is really an interesting timeline and we actually have to go back uh, before January of this year to 2012 and um, it turns out that probably at least three different versions of stat papers were submitted uh, before the ones that were ultimately accepted at Nature. And so I've actually been learning a little more about that. Uh, nothing has really come out concrete in that area. But um, it's interesting to think about that before this all really started, there was this sort of prehistory of STAP where the papers were rejected. And apparently there was you know very... You know, uh, you know, journals like Science and Cell. Uh, you know, there were serious concerns raised, and and so then we get to January 2014 this year, and the papers came out on January 29th, and I think it's no exaggeration to say, you know, these were global blockbuster papers, and you know, immediately people were contacting me all over, you know, from all over the spectrum, you know, from people who are not even scientists saying, you know, what's this acid bath? Yeah, stuff, contacting you, know? you. I had friends tell yeah. me they could dip their yeah. cells into Coca-Cola and make their own yeah, stem cell like lines. Some were saying, you know, what if you drink pickle juice or something like that? <laughs> so it really, it really resonated with people across, you know, the widest spectrum. Um, frankly, when I first read them, I thought, you know, something's seriously wrong here, but um, I didn't really want to blog that bluntly about it. So I just, you know, that first day I published a, a post that reviewed the papers. And, and I tried to be pretty, you know, pretty politically correct, but at the same time, keep it real. So I raised. You were skeptical. Some, you know, we all were. Yeah. Keep, so, I, so I raised some key questions. And then I was really surprised because over the next week or so, the phone, the emails were coming in from people I really respected. People I'd, I'd say, you know, top scholars, and they were saying, you know, this is this There's is no way. Yeah. This is baloney. You yeah. know, it doesn't make sense. And and that was really surprising me that people were really, you know, they they were upset. They were really upset about this. Um, you know, for whatever it's worth, most of them didn't want to go on the record about it at all. But they were pissed off, to be frank. And hmm. and it's funny how people kind of took. You know, the scholars in the field really took it almost personally, you know, this, these papers, they really took a front to them. So it wasn't just like, oh, here we have a problem or something. You know, people really uh, reacted pretty emotionally to it. Um, and as time went on, you know, what really happened is we saw a couple websites, uh, one pub peer and then another one in Japan. Um, this guy, I can't remember how to pronounce his name, Juji Chen or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they started raising specific concerns about, you know, parts like figure 1E e and mm -hmm. other parts. And, you know, it just sort of snowballed from there over the next few weeks in, in February and March um, of this year where we started seeing, you know, like figures put together, duplicated images. And pretty quick we got to the point where Riken, you know, the the Japanese uh, part of this collaborative team between Japan and uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Med School, you know, on the Japanese end, they started an investigation pretty quickly. 
Um, and, you know, we, we don't really know much about what's going on on the U.S. side of that, but there's been really a firestorm in Japan, and the media just went crazy in Japan. Um, you know, we were talking about earlier how, um, you know, this story was all over the media in Japan. I have friends in Japan, they said it was on, you know, the equivalent of CNN and, you know, Fox News and NBC, you know, every night practically. So Every wild. night, wow. Yeah. Yeah, so it really exploded in Japan even more than anywhere else. And I had reporters stalking me, you know, because I was blogging about it, which was pretty crazy. <laughs> Somehow they got my home phone number You're, and like you got paparazzi. The the night. <laughs> so um, it, pre- it became pretty clear that you know we had this really unusual situation where you know in the U.S. there was talk about it quietly, most for the most part, amongst researchers in Japan. Like, you know, the whole Japanese society was really uh, engaged in this. And, um, you know, pretty quick, um, Riken, you know, went forward really fast with this, and they concluded there had been misconduct. Um, they only looked at, I think, six specific areas of the whole STAP, you know, universe. And, and some people said they really should, should have looked at more stuff. You know, was there sort of like, you know, using Dr. Obakata as a scapegoat or, you know, so there's a lot of accusations and complexity there. There's also um, the fact that she is a woman scientist in Japan. And right. It was a major honor at first, right? When this was yeah. discovered. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, in retrospect, we can look back and say that some of the people involved in STAP and, and perhaps Riken as an institution, they really hyped this. They They were calling it, you know, like... Uh, better than IPSLs, and I think that may have been one of their mm-hmm. their biggest mistakes is to compare it to IPSLs. And I think they even said like this is like a Copernican level discovery, and so they raised wow. expectations <laughs> so so high. Wow. They brought they up really Copernicus. Invi- wow. You know, they were inviting people to to really you know, yeah. you know look at these papers super carefully. And when they you know when they did, it really started unraveling. Uh, some point in there, I started like a crowdsourcing experiment on my blog, you know, to have people throw up there, you know, their results about how they're trying to replicate STAPs. So that's another part of this is like dozens of labs around the world were trying to see if they could get this to work. And pretty much none could. Um, some of them were willing to go on the record about that. Other ones, you know, only later said that they couldn't get it to work. I thought it was pretty astonishing. Nature had done its own survey. I think of what they called like 10 scholars in the stem cell field or, you know, top labs. And, and even in Nature News' own survey, none of those 10 could get staff to work. And so you sort of had like a couple parallel things going on. You had, you know, problems with the figures, plagiarism started coming up. Um, and then you had sort of like this whole world of people trying to get staff replication experiments to work and no one could get that to work. Um, and so... Uh, you know, things just kind of got worse and worse. Dr. Sasai was actually not um, in the in the Riken report. It, it, Riken indicated he he was not guilty of any misconduct, but you know they did indicate he might have had some kind of role and perhaps he should have done more as a mentor or something like that. But um, you know, ultimately now Riken is trying to where we stand now is Riken is is trying to replicate STAP itself. And they've included Obakata in those experiments. Um, I'm kind of hearing through the grapevine it's not working, but I don't know how much you know weight to put on that. But 
Okay, um, if, if you don't mind, I have to bring up some of the more salacious details. Like, first of all, he, sure, he yeah. left a note to her saying, uh, right, correct, uh, please repeat stop results. Yeah, I mean, is this all true? alleged, though? I mean, I want to, I don't It's all alleged, yeah. I think we need to be yeah, careful. It hasn't been released, right? To, the to notes the... haven't been released, but there was some indication in the Japanese media that there was something about the notes saying, you know, to Obakata, you know, Please replicate Stap or something like Did that. Did he re- um, uh, leave her one though, or is that not true? I don't know. You know, again, we kind of re- are relying upon Japanese media reports, and they said, you know, somewhere something like he left three or four different notes. You know, one on his secretary's desk, or and maybe one to Avocada, and maybe a one couple to the others. lab or something like that. Yeah, because yeah, we. Yeah, that's I, another thing I, I don't to, know if you've heard the J- Japan Times, but we read an article suggesting, you know, that they went on fifty-five business trips together, Sasai and Obakata. And I'm not sure if this is a you know the National Enquirer of Japan or an actual news organization. I, I Wikipedia'd them, but it didn't really tell me that it was a tabloid. So I'm wondering, is there more to this that would make you know some, because I'm trying to make sense of this besides maybe you know depression, but apparently Just the shame, you um, know, the shame and the you know, yeah. but it seems like you know. Uh, this was really an extreme case. Like Wu Suk Wang probably had more disgrace, you know, than mm-hmm. this publication. He was like a third author, or third from last, right? In this, yeah, in the so Nature Papers, there there have been a lot of accusations in the Japanese media that there were issues beyond Stap. But again, you know, so much is unsubstantiated. I think we need to be really careful and uh, maybe just sort of, you know, keep keep an open mind and see how this this develops maybe we can get actual more facts about what went on i think you know my hunch is stat played some kind of role in this but i don't know if there were other issues okay you know the other the other thing you know it, there's so many pieces and you'll never really know you know they were investigating all the investigators in reich and they were going to go back through their publications so you know you you don't know what that i mean there was questions of what they were going to do for the cdb or the center for developmental Bio, biology at reich and that society was so implement you know so instrumental in forming and getting off the ground and really getting going um so you know he uh, he was a um uh, I believe he was a co-director. Is that right, yeah, Paul? Yeah, freaking. And 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 you, yeah. he was most likely in line to to become the director at some point. So there was a there's just there was a lot of things probably that happened all at once, and I can imagine um, the kind of strain on him. And uh, you know, so if, if those other things were true and those things might come to light, I mean, all those things might have just got to a head, and that's that's where that's where it ended. But. Um, you know, I guess ultimately, in the end, the cell, the papers were retracted in May. Uh, both papers. Um, I think it was the letter first, right, and then a couple days later, it was the uh, article as well, because there was those two papers. Um, and then the paper, then that, that I think there was that that data that came out, that genetic data, which was so weird that they saw that 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 these cells had like different, you know, wasn't necessarily human. Was that right? They found evidence of mouse uh, uh, genomes or something like that in there, and it got real weird after that. What, think, what's that all about? Is that right, Paul? There was some sort of um, uh, there was like a, a switch of cells or something like that. Yeah. So I I've been in touch with uh, Teru Wakayama, who was. Yes. Um, you know, he, he was brought into the STAP process kind of in the middle, mainly to do the developmental biology studies related to the potency of the alleged STAP stem cells. 
And um, so I've been in touch with him, and uh, you know, my my sense of it is that it seems like he fortunately he he had like an archive, you know, in his liquid nitrogen or whatever of various cells that sort of came along at different stages of the STAP process. And the stap cells were supposed to originate from mice that had a certain, like a GFP transgene. That's on right. Certain, That's what it was. Certain chromosome, and and some preliminary genetic analysis indicated that that wasn't the case in the actual stap cells. So there was some, you know, the genetic reality. These cells didn't seem to match what was uh, reported in the paper. And um, I think those genetic studies of the, you know, quote unquote stap cells are still ongoing. And um, so I don't have the final word on that, but definitely there's definitely some kind of mismatch there and it could be a complicated situation where the the stap cells might actually have been a mixture of other various kinds of cells like embryonic stem cells maybe trophoblastic stem cells uh but that's you know that's one of these still unresolved areas of stap well i'm you know what do you think about the turnover time because i'm actually impressed by how quickly this was corrected you know, uh, science did its business, its process. It's true, you know, yeah, it couldn't be replicated. Therefore, it was, you know, not scientific, not science. It's It got corrected. Yeah, I think it was really fast. And uh, I've talked to many people about this. And, and sometimes people say, you know, why was it important to address this so, you know, head on and quickly? And, um, you know, and I think it was addressed really quickly compared to past, you know, kinds of experiences in this area where, you know, it could take a couple of years for a paper to get retracted, even five or 10 years ago. And now, you know, this was retracted just in a few months. And, you know, the stakes here were that I was hearing people saying, you know, we've already assigned grad students and postdocs to work on STAP. You know, we're using loud money for this, you know, and this is going to be like people's doctoral studies it's going to be their postdoctoral work and so that's what i'm i'm telling people it's not just the scientific record there were actually yeah. real people whose yeah. careers were on the line and research dollars so i have to say overall this was all you know this all played out so fast it was almost you know shocking how fast I this mean, got corrected I, here's here's my problem with that joseph and paul on the same on the going along i agree however the problem for me was uh nature's role in this and also Harvard, you know, uh, we maybe it's just the way the Japanese media works, and maybe scientific fraud and scientific things like this get more uh, focus in mainstream media than it does in our country. But I, you know, Harvard did a really good job of being very quiet. They didn't do you didn't hear anything out of there. So you remember, you know, Charles Vic- Charles Vicanti, right? Charles is that his first name? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. He senior author on one of the papers. And we didn't hear anything from them. There was no statement. There was no, there was nothing. Not for a long time. And so, yes, I agree. It got corrected and things happened quickly, but it was kind of one sided. We didn't, we didn't get a big thing from nature coming out right away and taking the lead and saying, this can't be tolerated. We're going to, it was kind of a very passive nature way of handling things. So, um, and, and and I guess we can now go into a little bit. You know, Vacanti is stepping down. I was reading your your article, Paul, about that. So I mean, that obviously could have something to do with STAP. We don't know if it does, but it seems very uh, interesting that this is happening right at this time. So you know, maybe that's how they decided to handle it. But my my biggest problems were, and I said this in, on the show a while back. Where was Harvard in this, and where was Nature in this? You know, I mean, this is this is more so Nature. I mean, we where were they on this, and why didn't they come out right away and say, you know what, we're going to get to the bottom of this 
is we're not going to tolerate this, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And and, uh, and frankly, you know, I could sum it up by saying I'm, I'm pretty disappointed in nature in terms of how they handle this. You know, we can say that the retractions happen quickly, but I don't think nature really wanted necessarily that to, you know, that, no. that to be the way it would work out. And they were, you know, I and others were pressuring them, to be honest. And, um, you know, that, that certainly doesn't make me popular with the nature editors. But <laughs> mm-hmm. I think, you know, this gets to the larger issue of responsibility. And I think there was definitely like an imbalance of responsibility with staff. Some people took on a lot more responsibility and, and really tackled it. And I think Dr. Sasai, my guess is he shouldered a ton of the responsibility, mm-hmm. probably more than was deserved. You know, we can't be sure. And then other people, you know, they really managed to avoid responsibility. And, and so, um, you know, that's that's something about staff that still doesn't quite sit right with me is it doesn't seem like it's, you know, it's it's played out in a way that there was really a fair share of responsibility that went around. And go- going along those lines, you know, I, I was reading an article, Paul, and I don't know, Joseph, if you know, there's this uh, biologist, he's at Berkeley, Michael Eisen, and I was reading an article from him, and his father as it was a scientist at NIH, and he committed suicide. No way. And he wrote, and he wrote about this, and he was in the light of Sasai's death, and he was explaining uh, the situation, how it's eerily similar to his father committing suicide, where somebody in his group at NIH, there was a fraud, and when confronted, um, you know, it wasn't directly uh, his father, who was the PI or a lead scientist there, he wasn't necessarily accused of doing anything wrong, but because he was senior or involved uh, shouldered a lot of the load and ended up killing himself over it. And what Michael wrote in this is that it's important when fraud is identified to act quickly, but you have to be careful on who, making it a witch hunt and just associating everyone on the author line with fraud and being a devious human being. Because, in fact, a lot of the times, the people on that author line, yeah, they should know and they should be familiar with it, but you can't just blank blame every single person and call them a fraud because one person went out of their way to deceive and and so you know society was proved to not do anything necessarily wrong but people were blaming him you should have known you should have known but why why blame you know we're blaming co-authors we're blaming all these people for not picking it up but what about the reviewers at nature what about the editors at nature how come they didn't pick it up we're not we're not accusing them of anything so I think we have to be very careful here. There is fraud sometimes, um, and it's important to investigate. But I think you have to be careful on how you go about pointing fingers. It's just because this is something that can happen. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, I did read Michael's column, and his brother Jonathan's a colleague of mine here at UC Davis. So I was really sad to have heard about their father. And um, you know, I do think nature has more responsibility, and I do think when a paper you know, comes out that's really, you know, problematic and maybe there's even misconduct involved, we do have to be really cautious about um, realizing that there are real people behind the paper. And that was one of my my main concerns as I blogged about STAP is I, I've blogged only about the papers, the data. Um, I've really steered clear of talking about, uh, you know, or assigning blame to any authors right. at all. You wouldn't believe how many comments in moderation on my blog I've had to delete where people were slinging mud at the different authors of the STAP paper, and I just wasn't going to tolerate that. So I actually think with STAP there wasn't a witch hunt, so I kind of disagree a little bit with Michael on that. 
Um, I do think the Japanese media went crazy, um, but I don't think in the, in the scientific community that there was really a witch hunt in this case. I do think that, like we were talking earlier, that sort of imbalance and responsibility that was taken on, um, you know, was a serious, serious problem. Um, and, you know, we do have to anticipate there's probably going to be more papers like this. And when they come out, we have to keep in mind they're real people, you know, with real lives right. and feelings behind all of this. And um, so that's something we got to keep in mind. You know, scientists are people, too. Yep. Well, I have to say uh, Yoshiki Sasai was like one of my heroes in science. And uh, I, I b- initially believed in STAP because he his name was on it. I, and, you know, I was shook up by this and, a lot, you know, I, I saw Lorenz that morning. He was shook up. He knew him. Yeah. And like everybody was kind of shocked. I was like, wow, yeah. he actually, you know, committed suicide. And we lost like, you know, I was telling Chris, I was like, if uh, you guys heads of labs are Jedis and we're postdocs are like halflings. And like he was like Mr. Windu, like Master Windu. He, he yeah. had like. You know, he was one of the all stars, and um, it's a huge loss for the community. So it's um, a, it's a terrible loss, and I'm and I'm you know, Paul. This is this is the question I get from people now. You know, they email me or I call. Why is there so much fraud in your field? You know, wow. what's up with the fraud in stem cell science, or wow. what's up with fraud in science in general, or in particular, why are stem cells so shady? What's going on with your field? So. I mean, if someone asked you that, Paul, I mean, how do we answer that? You know, I feel like every time, you know, there's a stem, there's a lot of good in stem cells that come out in mainstream media nowadays, and I'm glad to see that. But unfortunately, we also have a good share of bad stuff coming out. Stem cell tourism, bad stem cell transplantation across the world, now fraud. And I mean, so is, you know, what, maybe you can explain a little bit to people why there is fraud in science and why, why people go to the lengths they go to to deceive and publish bad, bad data. I've been asked that same question by a whole variety of people. And so I've given a lot of thought. And I think one element to this is that um, scientists are under tremendous pressure to, uh, you know, get publications out there that kind of rock our world, you know, so it's not enough just to publish, you know, a really good paper that's very interesting and important. You know, there's this pressure to be quote unquote transformative. And so I, I kind of think that, you know, with the stat papers and we've seen some other high profile stem cell papers, like with, uh, heart disease research that got retracted and, Mm -hmm. You know, and, you know, the story goes on. And I think some of what's going on is, is some, some people in the field succumb to this pressure. And I, I was writing in a post uh, earlier that I think the real story of STAP is, is not so much the cells under, you know, the pressure and the stress. It's really scientists under that mm-hmm. pressure and stress and how do they react to it. And I think in some cases it, it leads to poor decision making. And, you know, and, and it, it, maybe it is hard for some people you know, you see a developing paper that maybe is going to, you know, be, you know, could be a Nobel Prize. It could, you know, really shake up the world. And it may be really hard for some people to let go of that story if data starts popping up that's inconsistent or they think maybe they can't get it published. Or So I think that pressure definitely is, is part of things that can ultimately lead to these issues. And I think the other thing is just stem cells are so exciting right now and, and, you know, they're kind of a, a hot area. And so I think anytime you have a hot area, it's, it's kind of like a magnet for mm-hmm. people, you know, going down the wrong path, I guess we could say. It's like Alex Rodriguez. He's, it's like a lightning rod, I guess. People always want to talk about it when it's, uh, 
when there's something. Yeah, I, I, and I guess the follow up is, what do we do about this? You know, I when I, I was at the ISSCR meeting, and there's a there was a, uh, a little council, small council thing we had with some senior investigators and young investigators, and the topic was publications and publication and stem cell science or in science. You know. Uh, Ethics and publication, really. How can we make this a better publishing environment? Uh, what are some things we can do? This is what the discussion was about. What are the things we can do to really make um, publication and publishing uh, not, not you know, kind of not warrant or, or, or kind of in a way that eliminates or kind of dissuades this fraud to go in? It's kind of a tricky discussion to have because I, I can come up with great answers, but I don't think any of them will ever happen. Um, I know Randy Sheckman came out kind of trashing big journals and saying they put too much yeah. pressure on people. And we, we thought it was funny that a Nobel Prize winner who published his whole career in these big <laughs> journals is now coming out saying they're bad. And I get why. Um, and, and people say open access, but there's a lot of problems with open access. So, I mean, what do we do from here, Paul, to, uh, aside of opening up the funding gates and getting scientists the appropriate amount of money so they don't might have to feel that pressure, what, do you have any suggestions for people when they ask, what can we do to kind of assuage or eliminate this fraud? Well, I guess I would say on one level, you know, you can kind of, uh, think about acting locally, you know, one approach is for all of us to really embrace the idea that, you know, we need to, uh, as mentors for each other and mentors for trainees, you know, we have to embrace this idea that, you know, we can't fall in love with our hypotheses. We have to test them. You know, we have to publish what, as best as we can tell, what is accurate and correct. And so if we can collectively do that better, I think, you know, you can kind of act locally and have a global effect. But you're right, we're facing, on the other hand, these global forces that are really powerful on the other side. And I think one of them is just, there's so much, uh, you know, power in the hands of, of journals that, quote unquote, have the high impact and their sort of circle of reviewers, their editors. And I think, unfortunately, they have this sort of cultural expectation of, again, you know, we want to go for the sexiest papers. We got to publish them quickly, and so I think sometimes, um, you know, that kind of culture can lead papers and authors down the wrong path. And I don't want to place all the blame on the journals, but um, it's really kind of cultures entrenched. You know, what do we do? And you know, I can't say if I could try to get a paper in Nature or Science or so, I can't really say I wouldn't. You wouldn't wanna, try, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, wouldn't I want to try to do that? But um, that's not, you know, honestly, I can say that's not on my mind constantly. Um, but I think you know for what? a lot of people, you know, if you can get one cell or science or nature paper, it could make the big big difference with your next grant or you know your career advancement or. So I, I don't honestly quite know how we dig ourselves out of the current situation. I have to say um, I'm a, I'm a little more skeptical. I think that the this the cases like this are going to happen when you have somebody who apparently you know uh, plagiarized their intro to their thesis with the NIH website and then goes on to do nefarious stuff with stem cells. You know, it's very easy to fake that sort of a you know result if you wanted to, because yeah. you have pluripotent sources, and uh, if somebody's willing to do that. It's very hard to catch, and uh, it, it's very dangerous. It's like a sleeper cell, and uh, we we caught it. But you know, a lot of uh, you know, 
work got distracted, like you said, Chris, and unfortunately, somebody died. Yeah. And yeah, and we we caught it. Someone has died. And and if you, aside from that, I mean, I I, I was reading somewhere, um, Doctor Takahashi, who has the IPS clinical trial in Japan for Parkinson's disease, was saying that Sasai's death alone not only not only you know has has impacts on his own work and what he was doing but on japanese stem cell science he was so instrumental in getting these things going and you know in really on the inside there that they said that their clinical trial might even get affected by this by this situation so you can see the ripples that just one one situation albeit it's been corrected but it's permanently now permanently affected things uh and yeah, and you know so, what though yeah. the, there we have an n of two now with this with uh you know Wu suck wang and the first sign the crack in the dam if you will is you know duplication of images then when the author retracts you know, themselves from the paper and then you know uh that's what happened with scadden and uh there was a duplication of image with that paper as well and it's just the pattern it's but uh, wang came back Right, I mean, he yes. he's since back. he yeah. since punched, I published. I read like over a hundred papers or something like yeah. that. So yeah. so there's hope, and I believe that people should get second chances. I don't think they should Me be written too. off forever and canceled off. And and you know, people make mistakes, and hopefully yep. they'll admit to it and move on. And you know, society will never have that chance to to do that. But um, I guess um, it's hard to say, Paul. I agree. It's hard to really say where do you start. There's a lot of things that we can recommend. I know. I know it's interesting that uh, some of the senior investigators, you know, Sean Morrison was there and he was telling me, and I didn't know this, that some journals, I think it might be eLife, for their reviewers, I was saying that, uh, this is probably a different topic, different topic for a different time, but now it's on my mind, that, you know, people know who I am when they're reviewing my paper, but I don't know who they are. And the transparency seems to be a bit off. And they were saying, well, we can never open it up so that, you know who the reviewers are, the reviewers that you know, and the reviewers know who everybody is because you can't be frank with your review. But Sean was saying that in certain journals now, reviewers know who reviewers are. So, um, for example, if there are four reviewers reviewing a paper, all four are aware of who they are. So, if the three of us right now are reviewing the same paper, oh. I know Paul, you're reviewing, and Yosef. And so, in knowing that, they say that their comments tend to be a little bit more guarded because. Their colleagues are there, and they're going to be called out if Sean or you know Sean was saying if I was to write this really kind of crazy, bad, negative thing, and someone else didn't think that they'd be like Sean. Can you explain to me why you know? And so there's a little more dialogue there. Wait, and, do they know who each other are? Or do they also see their reviews? They see the reviews. No they know way. who they are. They're able to comment on their reviews. They're, it's very interactive on the review process, and they're saying that. that 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 has really helped uh, reviewing become a little more fair. Um, because there is no rubric to review, you know, it's not like yeah. we can we can check off things like they did this, they did this, they did this, uh, and so um, if they don't know who, if the reviewers don't know who each other is, you know, are and and it, it's the, the it's, process seems to. I be like just, that though. Just, that's inner transparency within you know mm-hmm. the reviewing board. That's that's yeah. cool. Sunshine is like the that. best disinfectant. I like that too. Yeah, it's it's because you know at some point there's there's just got to be something. It's just it gets a little too crazy. But again, publication. I, I think the public publication process and reviewing is just one piece to this. You're going to have rogue people that go out there and falsify data, and they're people that walk the line all the time. People in every lab are balancing between, do I publish it now? Do I publish it later? Uh, can I, you know, is an N of two enough here, or do I need to squeak enough? I mean, this goes on 
all the time. Don't don't let it fool you. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but at least I think this is going on all the time. You know, where you're sitting there in a lab and you're like, ah, you know, you, you know, this is like questionable, but maybe you know, this is and people either decide, no, nah, I better not, or they say, nah, we're just going to stick it in there. And um, unfortunately, sometimes it gets to this level, and and I, I we just have to hope that at some point. It just stops and, you know, it, it roots out. I would like to be positive. I think it will. Yeah, I'm hopeful too, but, you know, I'm trying to balance that with realism. Well, that well, was, uh, that was like, I feel like this was very cathartic, to be honest, because there, I, I you know, I haven't had to, a discussion about it. Like, you know, I was just shocked for a few days in lab and now I'm sort of like, so Charles Vacanti has stepped down this week. Is that what's the latest as of um, t- today? Yeah, so he's apparently, August. according to an email I received, he, he, he hasn't stepped down from his position more broadly, but he stepped down, or he is stepping down September 1st as chair of his department, and he'll be going on a one-year sabbatical. So again, you know, we don't know if this is a staff-related decision or not, but I think at least, you know, it's some, there's, there could be some connection there. And I don't know if ultimately we're going to really hear anything from Brigham and Women's and Harvard or not, but I I hope we do because I hope they've, they've looked into this and, and, you know, that, that again might redistribute responsibility in a way that's more balanced. Yeah, I hope so too, because you have to hope that leaders in the field or leaders, you know, if you want to think of Harvard Stem Cell Institute as a power institution, uh, lead academic place. It is. It is. Right? Yeah. There's no doubt. You you would want to hope that that they would come out and be up in front and, and confronting and saying and talking, but... It's just unfortunately not that way, and I and I hope you know him stepping down and going away from a year isn't their way to avoid a, a focus of attention now to the country now that Japan uh, has had this and the society what happened and maybe it'll start to slow down over there a little bit so they're gonna so I hope not I hope it's not that but um, yeah you're right Joseph it feels good to just get it out and talk about it and uh, I think looking at the time we should probably probably move on from it um, and, and I think. You know, to close it off, Paul, we talked a little bit before when you before you got on. We we we, we typically rant, and we were saying, well, what can we rant about in a subject like this? Because we don't want to, you know, make this even more negative than it is. But you know, when, when we're taping this now, yesterday, uh, Robin Williams passed from suicide, uh, and we, we, I learned I didn't really know had a history of depression, uh, and so we thought we we rant about the face of depression in the world of medical research and just the world of medicine and how it's still uh, just not really taken seriously as a, as a disease, uh, as something that can grip you like a cold and just take you over and, and suck the life out of you. And uh, unfortunately, it f- affected Dr. Sasai and, and, and Robin and, and so many others. And so uh, when, are, when are we as a country, as the world – going to i know other places do it better than us when are we going to face the fact that mental disease is a real disease and 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 can really take you over you know i think we're heading in in a better direction than we have been in past decades on that front i i do think there still is a stigma about mental illness but i think maybe less so than in the past and so i'm kind of hopeful that in in coming years or the next decade or so you know maybe some kinds of mental illness like depression are really going to be realize to be just, you know, it's another illness that we need to help people 
And and, and from my experience in science, I, I you know I've met so many hundreds of scientists over the years. I do think mental illness you know does afflict scientists just as much or more so than the general population. And perhaps there's even more of a stigma in science that you know if you're having some kind of problem like depression or something like that, that you know you maybe you should hide it or something like that. And so I think. You know, especially with all the pressures we were talking about, funding, publishing, you know, what am I going to do with my career? Um, you know, scientists are under enormous pressure, and so it's not surprising that uh, we, you know, we might be at higher risk of mental illness and, and like depression. And so I think, you know, especially with Dr. Sasai's passing and now Robin Williams, you know, these are so sad, but they're also opportunities for us to open the door more on depression and and say, you know, it's okay if people are depressed and we need to help them. And, you know, I, and I've read statistics like they were talking about putting up a barrier on the um, Golden Gate Bridge to prevent suicide there. And they said that when they've stopped people from committing suicide, almost none of them will commit suicide in the future. And so I think oftentimes people are in crisis, you know, mm-hmm. they're in this really depressed right. mode. And if we can help them, you know, get out of that acute situation, most of the time they're not going to commit suicide later. And so I think, you know, if we can remove this stigma, it would do so much good. Yeah, you know, It's also, I feel like we need to not only remove the stigma, but also recognize it as like, if somebody told you they had gotten cancer and you're like oh no you know you have a different empathy than when you hear depression like uh robin williams and tony scott i don't know if you know who he is but he made my favorite movie true romance and uh top gun this Mm -hmm. famous director i think he jumped off of that bridge in san francisco and this guy's wildly successful and it's hard for people to get in their head that somebody like that would be sad because they have everything yeah Uh, and it's hard to wrap your head around and whereas something like cancer or you know even aids or something is is people have a different form of empathy where they don't see depression as much of a disease that's deadly you know, yeah. and uh, it can be if it's not treated right. So uh, it's sort of a weird rant. We usually have a funnier, lighter tone, but um, you <laughs> but, know. But, but, but the positive, like Paul said, is I, I agree. I think we have turned a corner a bit. You know, especially I agree when you too. talk about like health insurance and things that they cover, and the. And I've always said that every single human should talk to another human about their human problems because you're. It's inescapable, and you're right, Paul. We're in a profession, scientists, where ninety percent of the time our grants get rejected. Ninety percent of the time our papers. Get, we're constantly being rejected and told that it's not good enough, and you know you'll hear you hear it all the time. Don't take it personal. Don't take it personal. At some point, you take it personal. I mean, you're a person, yeah. uh, and so um, you know it's sad. And I don't want to say it's depressing, but I think we're on a positive. And like Paul, like you said, let's let's use these instances and turn them around and make it into a positive situation because <laughs> turn that the frown end, upside down. <laughs> yeah, you know, in the end, you have tragedy, but you have to make tragedy. You have you got to look at what caused it and see if you can make it better. So I hope in all of this stap crap, yeah, in all of this. Uh, stuff with depression that we can come out of it better, you know. So yeah. that's, I guess, that's how, where maybe we should end on a. On a you know, what we should do probably, Joseph. We should get. We should probably get a stem cell scientist that's looking to model mental disease come on the show. That'd be an interesting. Yeah, thing to talk we about. talked um, about this before. We should. Yeah, have we a can maybe get Ron or, yeah. or Rusty or someone like that to to come on and, and talk about maybe schizophrenia or something like that. But anyway, Paul, thanks so much for coming back on the show and, and talking about a, a difficult topic but an important one. We appreciate you jumping back on and doing this. Yeah, sure, thanks you guys. This, we'll t- talk about what's the plug for your uh, website? 
IPS. Oh, IPSL.com. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. IPSL.com. You and can't you, forget that. You one. also have a book too, correct? Yeah, Stem Cells and Insider's Guide. Excellent. Thanks for coming on. All right. Thanks, you guys. All right. Take care.